Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the seventh realm on the wheel of life. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on WPRR Ada Grand Rapids and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. Public Reality Radio, or you can check out WPRR at their website, publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcaster, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello, everybody. In this episode, episode 75, by the way, which is quite the uh, quite the little milestone for us. Oh, yeah, another arbitrary number. Absolutely. I was going to say the same thing, um, especially because we have, when you put together all of the special episodes, we're well beyond 75. Yeah, yeah, we're, but, yeah we're probably at 80 or yeah, 85 or something. Something right like that, but uh, yeah. still, we'll celebrate when we can. In this episode, we're wrapping up our three-part look at Buddhism. In our first part, of course, we talked about an almost humanistic look at Buddhism, things that naturalists can really kind of attach themselves to in Buddhism. Attach themselves to? Well, well that'd be a very non-Buddhist thing. To yeah, do. I suppose it would be, wouldn't it be? We also had the first part of our interview with Stephen Batchelor in that episode. And then in the second part, we talked meditation, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about the Buddhist path and mindfulness meditation, and is there any scientific evidence to back it up? I'm a big meditation skeptic, and I don't know why. I mean, the, what we discussed in the last episode, um, there is some evidence to suggest that there may be some uses for it. I'm just not into the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm a more active sort Have of you person. tried it? I haven't. Um, I don't know, sitting still and not doing anything... Unless I'm asleep, that, that doesn't really work for me. You know, if I'm going to change the world, I want to be doing something more active. Ah, so it's your virtue that allows you to not sit still. Exactly. <laughs> See how I spin that? All right. And in this episode, now we're going to take a look at, well, the other side of Buddhism, right? Yes, the, the crazy side. Yeah. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. I'm sure there were plenty of people who were listening who may be familiar with Buddhism who were listening to the first two parts and going, well, this is a very lovely, pretty picture you're painting for us. Mm -hmm. uh, it happens to not at all gel with my understanding of Buddhism. This does not sound like the Buddhism I've been introduced to. Right. For those who've been saying that, uh, this is the episode for you. This is where we look at what happened to Buddhism after the life of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that it quickly falls back into mysticism, into superstition, into dogma, into ritual. And really this, this again, this begins not very long after the life of the Buddha. There's a great schism that happens in the Buddhist Sangha. The oh. Sangha uh, meaning the, the community of Buddhist monks and nuns. Right. Religions and their schisms. The schism fractured Buddhism into many different sects. One of the only ones that remains today, uh, the Theravada tradition, mm -hmm. uh, Theravada meaning the tradition of the elders or the traditionalists, 
The Theravada sect is the closest one to that early form of Buddhism that we talked about in the first part of the series. To what the Buddha himself actually taught. Yeah, we were mostly talking about pre-Theravada Buddhism. Right. But Theravada gets the closest. It has a lot of metaphysical views in it as well. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, again, skeptics, uh, especially any skeptics who are interested in checking out Buddhist literature, Buddhist doctrines, Buddhist sanghas, they would probably find themselves much more at home in a Theravadan tradition. What's the balance of the Theravada versus the other forms of Buddhism? Is it the most prominent one? Is it a no, minority? It's the least. It's, yeah. it's a minority. It is sometimes called Southern Buddhism because it has a strong following in Thailand, Thailand, Laos, I think, Sri Lanka, some of these areas, but it's it's not really very widespread outside of those those regions. It's not uh, the Buddhism of the Dalai Lama, for example. No, not at all. Yeah. No, the dominant form of Buddhism uh, across the world is Mahayana. Right. And the Mahayana sect calls themselves the greater vehicle, meaning that the Theravadans are then the lesser vehicle. They view the Theravadans as not having the full truth, not having the full Dharma. That sounds like a kind of arrogant label, right? We're, we're the better ones. Yes. The Theravadans had their arrogant label for the Mahayanists, which I think was actually pretty close. Mm -hmm. The Theravadans called them illusionists. Not as in like magicians who perform illusions. No, people uh, who believe in illusions. Right. <laughs> and it's not hard to see why they characterize them that way. Uh, one of the primary texts in the Mahayana tradition is the Lotus Sutra. Yes. The Lotus Sutra comes around, I've heard conflicting figures, uh, anything from 1st century to 2nd century of the Common Era. One of the radical teachings of the Lotus Sutra is that the Buddha's teachings are not complete. There were truths that the Buddha kept hidden from the monks at that time, which is odd because as we talked about last time, uh, in these early Buddhist texts, uh, supposedly the Buddha has no esoteric teaching. Right. The text in the Pali Canon, say that uh, the Buddha says he has nothing in the closed fist of the teacher. In other words, there's nothing up his sleeve. There's exactly. nothing he's yep. hiding from you. He's just – he's laying it out there. Mm -hmm. But Lotus even that Sutra. was deception. Yes. Yes, it was. It turns out, according to the Mahayana tradition, that the Buddha was not actually human. Oh, this is one of those moments where we kind of jump the shark, <laughs> yeah, yeah. as in, it were. In my opinion, Mahayana jumped the shark very early. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Yes, he's not human. He's mm -hmm. been enlightened from time immemorial. Right. So the whole idea that he had to come to earth, go through the ascetic practices, sit under the tree, become enlightened, that was all charade. Right. He just did it as an example to other human beings. Why didn't the elders speak of this hundreds of years ago? Because many of them were too naive to understand. They were just blown away. They didn't get it. Right. Why didn't the Buddha teach these things? Because he knew the people at the time couldn't understand it. One illustration they use to, to explain this is the children in the burning house. Right. Where there's a, there's a house that's on fire and there are children in it and – the Buddha sees the house on fire and thinks, okay, and the kids aren't aware that the house is on fire. How do I get them out? So he says to them, hey, come outside. There are toys out here mm -hmm. rather than saying, run, run, there's fire. Um, so he coaxes them out of this burning house. And that's what the Buddha was doing when he was 
posing as a mortal being. Exactly. He was using skillful means, realizing that his audience wasn't mature enough to accept they these They understand the, the full picture. Very but good example. But now that they're out of the fire, now, now we can tell the whole truth. All yeah. this is understood as skillful means. Mm-hmm. You need to take your audience into account. You need to tailor your message to what they're ready or prepared to learn. Uh, and so suddenly we get... Far away from the nothing in the closed fist of the teacher, we learn that the Buddha is going to tell different things, maybe even contradictory things to Mm -hmm. people uh, wherever they are on the path, where they're ready to hear it. So the Buddha is not a human. The human Buddha is just a materialization. Like an avatar uh, coming out of Hindu. He's just a materialization here of of a Buddha that exists in many forms, in many different realms and dimensions throughout the universe. In fact, interestingly enough, as a side note, in the Hindu tradition, uh, Vishnu has, I believe, 10 avatars, one of which is Buddha. Mm -hmm. Another one is Jesus. Well, yeah, oftentimes. It's their way of you know, bringing these other religions back into Hinduism and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, your guy is just an aspect of our guy, so you're really Hindu too, which is interesting because they're a breakaway from Hindu. Yeah, Hinduism is like the brawny towel of uh, (laughs) religions. It can really soak up and absorb just about anything. Totally. Um, You can't even um, proselytize to a Hindu because they'll just say, oh, yeah, Jesus, sure. Well, add him in. The missionaries were totally stumped when they got to Hinduism. They're like, Jesus, that's great. Another one. (laughs) Right, exactly. When you've got thousands, what's one more? No, 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 no. But he's the only way. Oh, yeah, we've seen this before. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So, So with the Mahayana, then, we take this human Buddha and they transform him into a, a Buddhist trinity. Really, right? There are the three bodies of the Buddha. There is the earthly body, uh, mm. and that was the the charade, the mm. the material body right. that Buddha came to Earth with. There is the heavenly Buddha. This is the uh, the celestial body of the Buddha that exists in this blissful realm, like heaven. You know, part of the Mahayana idea was a compassionate Buddha would never just leave us here on our own, right? Even even though, again, the Pali scriptures said, and this is a quote, one is one's own refuge. Who else could be a refuge? Um, you should be, all be refuges to yourself. Yes. The teachings will take, the Dharma will take care of you while I'm gone. The teachings mm-hmm. are what to pay attention to. The Mahayana says, no, a compassionate Buddha, though, would never leave us on our own. Right. You wouldn't abandon us. Right. Therefore, it, I mean, it's it's very similar at least in the rough shape of it, as the idea of the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Yes. Jesus ascends into heaven, but he sends his spirit, who is always with his his disciples, his followers, because a compassionate Jesus would not leave these people on their own. Yes. So self-reliance, uh, you know, human Buddha is now replaced by a Buddha you can pray to. Mm-hmm. And then rounding out the Buddhist trinity, we have the transcendent body of the Buddha. Mm. And the transcendent body of the Buddha is more like a Buddha principle, a Buddha that equals ultimate truth. Whatever the truth of his awakening, his enlightenment, I mean, this permeates the universe as we understand it. And so the final Buddha body... Which is fun to say, Buddha body. (laughs) Buddha belly, Buddha body. Uh, This transcendent body of the Buddha is, is equal to ultimate truth. 
like some like Brahman, sense. we talked about in, in yeah. the first uh, episode of our, our Buddhism talk in Hinduism. Brahman is this transcendent thing that makes up everything. Yeah. It's the greater truth than Isn't uh, that any great? other truth. That's exactly what I was thinking yeah. is, you know, a hundred years later, this this amazing doctrine, this rejection of Brahman, it's back. Right. Just a hundred, couple hundred years later in Buddhism. It'd be like if Christians kept circumcising their young. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, let's not bring up that again. <laughs> but the heavenly Buddha is is not the only now semi-deity mm -hmm. that populates the Buddhist universe. Right. Uh, with the Mahayana, there is greater emphasis on this idea of the Bodhisattva. And uh, the Bodhisattva is a future Buddha. Um, I think in the Pali Canon, I could be mistaken about this, but I think in the Pali Canon, they, they do refer to the Buddha um, before the time of his enlightenment, like stories of his childhood, they refer to him as a bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. uh, someone who will be a Buddha. Yes, somebody yeah. who will eventually become a Buddha. Yes. The idea of the bodhisattva, though, is in the Mahayana, nobody really truly becomes a Buddha until everyone is enlightened. Hmm. It's explained a couple of different ways. I think the, the more common formulation that people will hear is this: the bodhisattva renounces final enlightenment until right. every other sentient creature has become enlightened. So they put that off. Really, they seek enlightenment for the sake of others, right. not for the sake of themselves. And so that final step won't happen until everyone else has reached enlightenment. There's other understandings which are that that uh, that it's kind of a all or nothing thing. That there's there's no such thing. And again, I'm much less familiar with Mahayana doctrines, so I'm always kind of nervous here that I might be screwing things up. Uh, so just just uh, for and our listeners, screwed up anyway. So yeah, for whatever. our listeners, keep that in mind. Uh, this is a, a tradition I'm much less familiar with. But I, I think the understanding is something like it's an all-or-nothing deal. We we shouldn't think there's some sort of final enlightenment while people are still in ignorance, while people are still in samsara, which is samsara again is that cycle, cycle of yeah. of death and rebirth and suffering. It, it calls to mind a quote I believe by Karl Marx, who said, uh, "No man can be happy till all men are content. We can none of us can have this full enlightenment mm -hmm. until everyone is enlightened." You know, one of one of the nice things about the Bodhisattva doctrine is that it lay followers, people who aren't renunciants, they're not becoming monks, they're householders, uh, they're raising a family and everything. Lay followers find a much more prominent role in uh, Mahayana Buddhism. They can take their vow uh, and say, "I will become a Bodhisattva," you know, eventually right. over series of lifetimes. Uh, but they can still feel engaged and involved in in the religion. That that's often what is credited to Mahayana as a real revolution is its its focus on its lay followers. It, it also, to me, seems to suggest a little bit more active role in the universe. With uh, Buddha's Buddhism, there was this idea that you know things come and things go. Here, it seems like, and I I could be mistaken. This might not be how it manifests, but. That because we have to get everyone enlightened before we can all achieve enlightenment, it seems like there's a little bit more, I don't know, missionary approach maybe where um, we need to help all our fellow souls. I think that would be accurate. If you read if you read a lot of the Pali canon, it's, it's a whole lot like, hey, look, you can't have a family if you're going to be following yeah, this exactly. path. Uh, it's really about disengaging from society right. and uh, – 
followers in the Mahayana focus on developing good karma, mm-hmm. building up good merit. There's this emphasis on doing good deeds. Yes, so you're right. There's there's more of a focus on that. The real negative side in my mind, in my opinion, to the Bodhisattva doctrine is, well, the idea is if once you get closer and closer to Buddhahood, you start getting supernatural powers. Right. Yeah. You start being able to transcend just the limitations of the physical world. Mm-hmm. If you get really close to Buddhahood, you can be reborn as a celestial deity. Sweet. And so you have entire pantheons in Mahayana Buddhism of these different celestial bodhisattvas. And, and they're very similar to Catholic saints. Yes, you know? or Hindu gods right. too. Yeah. <clears throat> you have a bodhisattva for this special thing. You have a bodhisattva yep. for, for that special thing. And depending on your needs, you know, you can pray to a certain bodhisattva and they can intervene in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or again, like Hinduism, maybe you can, you know, choose a, a bodhisattva that you feel a special affinity towards and do acts of devotion towards them. And so pretty soon, I mean, this what what began as a very humanistic religion based on self-reliance and a deep introspection to into your personal life, again, now is is a it's a religion of ritual, prayer, faith, relying on different deities and celestial realms to help you out. I wonder if this is just the natural course of religions. They start out, even when they start out more human-centered, that they just become these out-of-control, supernatural, blah-de-blah. I've wondered that, too. We see certain things pop up in religions over and over again. Yeah. And so Buddhism is a perfect example. I mean, this, this we can take this even further. The idea of the bodhisattva now, if, if you can petition a bodhisattva and it can help you, you can follow that trajectory in a whole different direction. So we get Pure Land Buddhism on the scene. The idea of Pure Land Buddhism is that one of these Buddhas now makes a makes a heaven. He Once he's has his powers as a divinity, he creates a pure land, mm-hmm. a perfect realm, where once you're in that realm, well, from there, reaching final enlightenment is just a cinch. Right. It doesn't have any of the, the problems and the hang-ups that our imperfect world has. And so in Pure Land Buddhism, the Buddhists, they performed good deeds to acquire enough merit that they can be reborn into the Pure Land. Right. You know, this is like doing good deeds so you can go to heaven. Faith right? versus deeds, right? Well, then the faith versus deeds things comes up because somebody puts it together. Well, you know, we're saying we can earn our way into the Pure Land. What if the Bodhisattva just did that for us as well? And you have oh, sure. Amitabha Buddha. All you have to do is speak his name and just doing that alone, uh, he will do the work to make sure that you are reborn in the pure land. And yes, you get this faith versus works debate. Wow. Uh, do we do good deeds and try to acquire merit and do this on our own or are we so corrupt that we couldn't possibly manage this and we need to rely on the grace mm-hmm. – the grace of Amitabha. So you have a debate in Protestant Christianity going on in Pure Land Buddhism. And I don't know if there's any connection between Pure Land Buddhism and Christianity, if there was an in- Christian influence that leaked in there. Right. I talked with Robert Price, who's very interested in, in Pure Land Buddhism. Robert Price is of the opinion that there was no Christian influence, that this this evolved independently of the Christian tradition. It just, it followed from its own set of premises. This way of thinking just kind of followed. Once you started 
believing certain things and asking certain questions, you just ended up here. So we don't get just uh, changes in in Buddhist metaphysics then with the Mahayana. We also get uh, radical changes in in Buddhist philosophy too. Mm -hmm. Most notably, the doctrine of emptiness. If you remember the first part of the series, we talked about this idea, anatta, the doctrine of no self, no soul. The doctrine of no soul was not really denying that things exist, that things have a physical reality. Right. It was denying that things have essences, that they have uh, some something that is permanent or abiding. So really, anatta is the opposite of atman, the idea of a universal soul. It's it's kind of the opposite of Plato's forms too, in a way. There's there aren't hmm. these perfect, stable ideas or essences out there. Really, everything is just made of different composites. Right. So in that sense, when the composites break down, the thing doesn't exist. It doesn't have an essence above and an addition to the parts that it is made out of. Which, but those elements that things are made out of are themselves real. There's no reason to deny that those exist. But that's also kind of in keeping with the scientific understanding of the universe. I mean, there's this table here is not table that exists in the realm of table. Right. It's made up of atoms, which are made up of you know, subatomic particles and so on and so forth. There's no perfect form of tableness out exactly. there in the universe that, right. this, that this is an expression of. Right. It's just a, an assembly of parts. Mm -hmm. But the Mahayana tradition then takes this further. And the doctrine of emptiness then working off of anatta says, well, not only do things lack a stable essence – or some enduring identity, they lack identity altogether. They lack any real existence altogether. Right. Things cannot be said to exist. They cannot be said to not exist. And that is the what emptiness really means. To, to put this into a Western language, emptiness is a denial of the law of identity. Our idea that A equals A, that something cannot be itself and the negation of itself the law of non-contradiction, emptiness is the idea that that's wrong. You know, throw that out. Right. You can be A and not A simultaneously. And as we've talked about in previous shows with that, once you abandon the law of identity, once you abandon the law of non-contradiction, any proposition you make becomes completely meaningless. Right. Uh, completely incoherent. You cannot possibly say anything rational without those without those two assumptions. Mm. And I guess in a strange way, I admire the Mahayana because they kind of – they went with it. Yeah, they, that's they, true. They, they don't do it half-assed. <laughs> they reached the same conclusion. Language is arbitrary. All propositions are ultimately arbitrary. All dualities, so all differences, whether it be tall, short, hot, cold, good, bad, th those, those are just imposed by our mind. Mm -hmm. They're completely arbitrary. Right. And part of reaching enlightenment then is to see the emptiness of all this and to be able to cast it aside. Interesting things then follow from this. First of all, if nothing has its own self-existence, if nothing has its own independent reality, then what does it mean to say the real world? You know, the, the idea of right. a physical world and a mental world kind of goes out the window at that point. And so you get the consciousness-only school in Mahayana on the scene, which declares that indeed it's the mind, it's only the mind that exists. I think, therefore, I am. And that's it. 
another interesting thing is if if a thing can be itself and the negation of itself, the opposite of itself at the same time, right? then there's no difference between nirvana, which is absence of suffering. Mm-hmm. There's no difference between that and samsara, which is this cycle of death and rebirth. So you would think then the whole Buddhist project didn't make sense anymore. Right. Uh, where, where's this distinction? But again, they went with it and they said uh, some people became of the mind uh, the, in the, the Buddha nature school that um, indeed we already are enlightened. Right. We already have uh, a Buddhahood somewhere buried deep inside of us. It's just we we still believe in these delusions, these dualities, and we haven't recognized our our true Buddha nature. We're enlightened. We just don't know it yet. So it you know the Buddhist project then becomes one of throwing away all these dualities, recognizing emptiness, and then discovering your true Buddha nature within. In other words, soul theory is back. Yeah. So yeah. the Buddhism, which starts off with this very radical doctrine, anatta, mm-hmm. which says no soul. Right. There, there's no Atman. There's no – you aren't in union with ultimate reality through Brahman. Yeah. I mean that's that's the core of the Buddha's message. Again, just a few centuries later, Buddhism now – has an ultimate reality. It has a Buddha who is basically a god. Right. And now it has soul theory again. Wow. Buddha would be spinning in his grave. Although maybe we maybe we give Buddha too much credit. Now, according to uh, the Mahayana, uh, at least, uh, Buddha himself um, acknowledged the idea of reincarnation. And he could remember his past lives, not only like the last couple, but what was it? The last 91 eons? Yeah, yeah. eons. I remember the first time I heard about that. <laughs> Which is at age of the world, right? The first time I ever heard about this, I was at a Buddhist Sangha. It was in the Mahayana tradition. It, it, was, it was part of the Vietnamese Zen tradition. You know, if you're a Westerner and you go to an English-speaking congregation, they kind of hide the crazy from you for quite a while. Right. And I remember, uh, I think I was wearing my Darwin shirt, uh, <laughs> and uh, Tai Tui, the monk there, um, brought up the. You know, he said, "So, um, what do you think of this? The Darwin and natural selection and everything brought up to the group. I mean, do you believe that?" Mm-hmm. And almost everybody in the room said yes and nodded oh. their head. And he said, "I don't." And I was like, "Oh boy, here it comes!" <laughs> and um, and turns out he didn't believe. In evolution, because you know, most Christians say, "Well, they don't. They don't think the world's that old. It didn't exist that long yeah. uh, for for natural selection to work." His was that uh, the universe has existed for far too long. Far too long. <laughs> I was going to say <laughs> and the aeon. He explained it. Um, I may get some details wrong here, but I think he explained it as a, a bird. Imagine a great majestic mountain, mm. and every thousand years or so, a bird flies by it with a with a little silk sash in its beak and that little that that silk sash just grazes the side of the mountain mm-hmm. an eon is a is an amount of time that it would take uh then for that mountain to wear down to where it was completely flat so very very long time billions and billions yeah, that's right and, and and buddha claimed to remember his past lives for 91 eons so he's not without metaphysical mumbo jumbo himself. No, I don't. I don't think so. Some of the some of this is in the Pali Canon as well. Uh, definitely the right. system of of reincarnation and karma. 
you get some of this stuff, but to some degree you have to wonder because you also get passages that seem incredibly skeptical of this. Mm -hmm. So part of this, you know, we need to remember the skills we learn when learning the historical Jesus that you sometimes have to tease out in a tradition, I guess the high Buddhaology from the low Buddhaology would be what we say. Sure. How do we square this all together? And it could be that to some degree uh, these were later additions. But I'm actually – I find it entirely plausible that the Buddha did accept a lot of that Hindu cosmology. Yeah. It, as radical as a lot of his beliefs were for that time, it's very seldom that anybody has the foresight to completely break right. with their tradition. Right. I think what's what I admire then in the Pali Canon and these early traditions is is the I, the lack of importance that the Buddha places on any of these things. Sure. A uh, listener to Reasonable Doubts sent me a link to this guy, Gil Fonsdale, a Theravadan teacher who I'm actually quite fond of. I've used his translation of the Dhammapada in my world religions class. And he shared in, in this talk uh, a really great sutta from the Pali Canon where all the Buddha's followers are talking about these wondrous qualities of the Buddha. And it's it's just this list is like ridiculous. Uh, it's stuff like most women when they give birth are laying down. But the Buddha's mother was standing up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And the and the Buddha, when he descended from his mother's womb, you know, stood up. That's a wondrous quality of the Buddha. Most babies, you know, couldn't stand. Well, cows can do that. And the Buddha faced the four directions and announced that this would be his last lifetime. <laughs> and it keeps on going on with these like ridiculous right. things. And each time they end with saying, and this is another marvelous quality of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. Well, the Buddha then comes and gives the last one. As all his followers are saying all this, the Buddha comes up to the congregation and he says, well, I have a wondrous quality of the Buddha. And the one he shares is the Buddha watches suffering arise, watches it persist, and then watches it fade away. So as everybody, all these monks are building up these grand metaphysical qualities, yeah. what he signifies as being important in himself is that he pays attention to his own psychology, to his own mind. Mm -hmm. So coexisting with this weird metaphysics is also this deep skepticism of it, where it's how much value is there to it? And naturally, the question arises, how do you, how do you move from such a, such a skeptical religion with kind of an empirical root, very much an emphasis on observation and everything, to right. one that just degrades into abject mysticism? I asked Stephen Batchelor that question. So now we're going to move on to our second part in the interview with Stephen Batchelor. Stephen Batchelor, again, was a monk who was trained in both the Tibetan and Korean Zen traditions. He was trained by monks within the Dalai Lama's inner circle. Mm -hmm. But as he went along, he began to doubt many of the metaphysical doctrines of Buddhism. And now he has a new book out. Yes, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. So here's our second part with Stephen Batchelor. The, the Buddha's life... Um, as lived in India at his time, was relatively simple, straightforward, pragmatic. And yet, I suspect within a, a few centuries at least, it had evolved into something really rather different. It had become an institutional religion governed by a hierarchy of priests. I mean, there are some extraordinary uh, contradictions here. I mean, for example, the Buddha, the canon itself quite clearly has the Buddha say on a number of occasions prior to his death, that um, he will not appoint a successor. 
that the teaching will be your teacher when I am gone, he says. And yet we find in the canon itself a number of episodes that follow the Buddha's death, probably in about the six months after his death. And clearly there is a power struggle straight away between those who seem to be holding on to the radical nature of his doctrine, in other words, giving tremendous uh, authority to each individual practitioner, as opposed to the ambitions of one monk in particular called Mahakasapa, who uh, definitely wants himself to be recognized as the Buddha's uh, successor. And I think he succeeds. So you can see the beginnings of the slippage from a kind of pragmatic, practical way of living one's life to one that at least has the germs of a uh, an organized religion, probably within six months of the Buddha's death. Mm. And this is suggestive, I think, that that tension could well have already been there during the Buddha's life. Mm. So I think you have the same in Christianity. You have the, you have the rather attractive figure of St. Peter, and you have this rather problematic figure of St. Paul. It's the same tension. And I suspect, even if you go to something like Marxism, you'll find that there are similar tensions will emerge will be seen to emerge after the death of Marx. Um, there are, if we find it in Russia between Trotsky and Lenin and Stalin, for example. So I think we're talking about something very human, and I don't <laughs> think it's specifically a question of uh, religious behavior. I think it seems to infect politics, possibly psychology, philosophy, uh, any great teacher who is a tremendous inspiration, who seems to be able to break the mold of current thinking is clearly going to be someone who's going to attract followers, some of whom will try to live their lives true to what their teacher taught. Others, though, will begin to project onto what has been taught uh, something absolute and final, something that needs to be established as, a, as, a, as, an, as an authority uh, governed and controlled by a set of people who are the the... the, the the holders of that authority, whether that be the Politburo, whether it be the Buddhist Sangha, whether it be the early church and Christianity, you see the same thing playing itself out again and again. This this really does seem to be a, a, a human thing, a human phenomena. For some reason, we, we can't resist the urge to strengthen our worldviews, to, uh, to try to buttress them. And in fact, it's interesting what the reasons for that may be. I think that, that Buddhism has has the tradition that, that counters that spirit, too. And I was wondering if you might explain for my listeners the, the whole analogy of the raft. I, I think one thing that is very different today with Buddhism, and possibly with other religious traditions, too, is that we cannot but see them through the lens of historical understanding. And as we move into a more global kind of culture, uh, we can step back and we can see, well, look, the Christians did this, the Muslims did this, the Buddhists did this. They're all following the same kind of pattern over the same periods of historical time. We can, we have the distance now to see these, what we might consider to be distortions or rigidifications of creative and original ideas. So are we not perhaps in a position now where we can take that on board and actually maybe learn from that? and seek to find forms of uh, philosophy, forms of religion, forms of political philo philosophy too, in which we are much more aware of the dangers that we can see 
in terms of what happened in the past. But you're right. I think the uh, it is very striking in early Buddhism uh, that the Buddha seems to be very conscious of precisely the problems that we've been discussing. And the image he has of the raft, I think, is a marvelous one. The, he says that uh, uh, his teaching, the Dhamma, which is the word in Pali, the Dhamma is like a raft, he said. It's like a person who finds themselves in the course of a journey by the shore of a great uh, body of water. And there's no bridge, there's no boat, and yet the urgency of the situation is such that the person has to get across that body of water to the other side. And so what that person does is he looks around and he just finds whatever bits of wood and other materials are around that can make a raft, and to pull those together as best he or she can, and then launch that raft into the river, and then without even bothering to make an oar, he says the person paddles with his hands and his feet until that raft gets into the other shore. And having got to the other shore, the Buddha says, well, look, would it be sensible for the person to keep carrying the raft once it's served its purpose? Um, or would it make not a lot more sense at that point to just put the raft down, either leave it for somebody else to use or or just put, put it up onto the shore and then carry on as um, with his own journey. And the Buddha, you know, it's rhetorically phrased, but clearly the point is that uh, you don't, once the teaching or the practice has served its purpose, then you drop it. Mm. Uh, it's no longer any value anymore. And so, you, so the Buddha says, and likewise with regard to the Dhamma, the Dhamma is for the purpose of crossing over, and I'm quoting this, it's for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. And that seems to be the point, that um, religions and any kind of institution does not see its methodology, its practices, its philosophy as a means to an end. But once these things become institutionalized, they very quickly become ends in themselves. Hmm. And I found this with my own training in, say, the Tibetan tr uh, tradition, that um, after a while it became clear that what I was being encouraged to do was to serve as a kind of a vessel in which certain things could be preserved, certain teachings, certain ideas could be preserved and uh, somehow then uh, uh, sustained in a supposedly uncorrupted way and passed on to another generation. There is a great fear of change. Now, this is particularly odd in Buddhism, where one of the, again, probably the Buddha's <laughs> keynote idea is that everything changes. Right. And yet you often have the impression that when you're taught that in a Buddhist situation, it's saying everything changes except our particular version of Buddhism. That doesn't really seem to be open to negotiation. And if you start, as a, particularly as a sort of young Western convert, to start questioning some of the core ideas, then that doesn't go down terribly well. In fact, you are pretty much ostracized if you insist on 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 pursuing such wrong-headed ideas well that brings me to my next question in your book buddhism without beliefs you you suggest in, in what seemed to me like in a very gentle very careful way to buddhist readers that doctrines like karma and reincarnation may have served their purpose uh and it might be time to jettison them just like the raft or or at least at least that it's it's possible that one could be a Buddhist and not believe in such doctrines as karma and reincarnation. What was the reaction to that? Well, um, the reaction was twofold. 
One reaction to that book, Buddhism Without Beliefs, was um, that a lot of people out there, people presumably rather like myself, uh, were suddenly relieved to hear that you could actually say these things in public. Hmm. You see, I think a lot of Western Buddhists had, had gone along, you know, rather credulously, and often a credulity which is accompanied by a very genuine respect for a teacher or a tradition. And yet there didn't seem to be any room, there doesn't seem to be any room for, uh, for, 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 vouch, for, for such doubts to be, to be genuinely articulated. Um, doubt of those things is largely seen as, uh, you know, a, an error. It's a mistake. It's wrong. It's not in accordance with reality to question, let's say, the doctrine of rebirth. And so I think there was a lot of Buddhists out there who were ca carrying on with their practices, um, living their lives in the world, and yet silently holding these rather anxious uncertainties and questions that didn't really seem to be able to go anywhere. So Buddhism Without Beliefs kind of opened up that voice. And a lot of people responded to me saying, basically, um, it's, I'm so relieved to hear someone saying this. Um, it's very, it's very liberating to not feel that I'm somehow a heretic or an apostate because deep down I can't buy into this view of the world. So that was a very positive thing. The, the, the other reaction from the Buddhist uh, orthodoxy um, was largely one that just dug in its heels and said, no, you can't do this. Who are you to do this, they would say. What sort of authority do you, Stephen Batchelor, have to start questioning things that have been uh, believed by generations upon generations of enlightened masters all the way back to the time I'm with the Buddha? Who do you think you are? Which is a reasonable enough objection, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, you can see the difference uh, between the digging in of heels and the refusal to budge on the one hand and this sort of sense of relief that, oh, at last someone is actually saying what I felt all along. Mm -hmm. And um, But of course, uh, there was relatively little in the way of explicit uh, critique of what I was saying from the Buddhist community. Uh, I would say the, 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 in many respects, I would say that the, the basic response of the Orthodox Buddhist community was simply to quietly close their doors. Uh, I was no longer included, as it were. I had a, a sense of being uh, very uh, quietly and gently excluded. Uh, the, that was really what I felt. Buddhists, as one perhaps shouldn't be too surprised to hear, are very good at um, passive aggression. Hmm. And uh, that's been my experience. I've largely felt myself cut out. You see, I had hoped having published Buddhism Without Beliefs, that this might actually give rise to a, a really spirited and incisive d debate and discussion and dialogue around these issues. But clearly most Buddhists were interested in that. Uh, Buddhists, I think, like most religious believers, are not actually terribly interested in finding out what the truth of, of the matter might be. They're far more invested in um, holding on to and reinforcing the opinions they currently hold. So it's very difficult to actually have any kind of dialogue uh, with such people. And I think my new book, in a sense, goes a little bit further. Uh, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy agnostic any longer. In other words, we must have an open mind to all of this, which, of course, is true. 
But I think one does need to make a more explicit stand and say, look, if Buddhism is really going to make any real contribution to our contemporary culture, then it really has to look very critically at some of these outdated worldviews. And frankly, they need to be dropped with a certain degree of urgency. I don't really think Buddhist philosophy or Buddhist ideas can really evolve and develop as long as they are still wedded to the cosmology of ancient India. It Mm. strikes me as absurd, frankly. And I do think we need, those of us who are pursuing this particular approach to Buddhism, need to be a little bit more forthright and simply say, well, there may or may not be reincarnation, who knows? But basically to say, as far as we understand from our understanding of the human being, how it's evolved from uh, over millions of years from other forms of life, what we know of the world outside this planet, it seems extremely unlikely that there will be any meaningful continuity of something like a personal identity into another life. First of all, we have to do that. And more importantly, I think we need to shift the whole emphasis of where Buddhist practice is focused, namely away from some post-mortem experience and focus uh, our wisdom and our compassion entirely upon the suffering of this world, Uh, The world that we inhabit together with six billion other people and countless other forms of life, this beautiful blue planet, where as far as we know, is the only place where life, conscious life has emerged and put all of our attention, all of our energy on addressing the concerns of this life. And then if there is some continuity after death, then I can't think of a better way to prepare for it, to be honest. And so I think a lot of this rebirth, karma, heaven, hell is really about, is really a kind of a denial of the urgency of responding to the suffering of the world. So I'd like to phrase this more in positive terms, that Buddhism needs to somehow become secular. It needs to become secularized. Hmm. Secular meaning, of course, to do with our time and our age. And I do think Buddhism does have a great deal to offer. Uh, It has wonderful traditions of uh, mental uh, development, of meditation, and I think a very uh, beautiful philosophy that in its core ideas is entirely compatible with the the scientific worldview, with with the views of modernity. In fact, it's almost rather startling when you recognize that the Buddha was saying things two and a half thousand years ago, that seemed to be speaking very much to the sort of condition many people find themselves in now. What initially interested me in Buddhism and continues to draw me back into reading Buddhist texts and listening to Buddhist teachers is is exactly what you described. It's the, the humanism, the humanism of Buddhism, those teachings which are very much focused on this life, which don't shy away from suffering. In fact, that's one of my favorite phrases of yours, which I've stolen from you and (laughs) used it many times, was uh, the idea that that Buddhism is a uh, uh, confronting the world and life, not about finding consolations to suffering and and these realities. So, you know, a lot of people who are listening to the show consider themselves secular humanists. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of them might have never uh, looked into Buddhism because they see it so associated with 
a certain type of mysticism, a certain type of uh, supernatural worldview. But the Buddhism, the secular Buddhism that you are describing, is very much grounded in in the needs of this particular world. What do you uh, think is the potential for a strong interfaith dialogue isn't the right term, but a, a, str- a strong uh, dialogue between Buddhists and secular humanists? Well, I think that is something that will uh, hopefully happen one day soon. And I, there are a number of indicators, I think, that uh, well, not only to do with the sort of correspondence I get, but I think more and more there are people who do not consider themselves religious in any sense, who are yet finding certain forms of meditation, for example, that actually do make a difference. They can be tried and tested. They actually work. But you're absolutely right that I think secular humanists are are put off by Buddhism because most of Buddhism does come across as being rather religious. It is another religion, frankly. And um, the metaphysics and the devotion and the piety and all of that kind of stuff, quite understandably, is uh, anathema to people who have perhaps gone through, let's say, rejecting Christianity or Judaism and now identifying themselves as secular humanists. And so Buddhism looks a bit sort of off-putting and dubious. And um, I completely understand that. So I think what if, if, if such a dialogue is to emerge, and I sincerely hope that it does one day, is that the Buddhists, or at least some Buddhists, have got to actually strip off the, the metaphysical accretions that attach themselves to what is called Buddhism and articulate it in a way that is completely metaphysic-free so that it begins to appear as being more in, in harmony, in a way, with a secular worldview than it does a religious one. Hmm. And I always find it rather disappointing that the dialogues with, with which Buddhists tend to have with people in the West are very often of a religious nature. Um, there are some exceptions. I mean, I think there's the dialogue between the Dalai Lama and the sciences, but even that I find is not much of a dialogue, really. Uh, it's more sort of sharing of opinions. Um, whereas I feel that for a real dialogue to occur, there has to be an openness on both sides to receive criticism and to perhaps be challenged to rethink what we mean by Buddhism on the one hand, secular humanism on the other. Uh, I think we also have to be aware that secular humanism can also become another belief system. Most certainly. It can also you can, it can become a bit like a religion. You can become dogmatic about it. Dogmatism is not an exclusive preserve of religious people. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, I, I would very much like to be in more dialogue with um, people of a secular background. Uh, in some respects, it's already happening. Uh, but I do think it could possibly be more um, widely appreciated were such a dialogue set up in a much more formal way. How that would be done, I don't know. When it starts, I'm sure you'll be a key player. And, uh, I, well, I wanted to personally thank you for taking the time to talk to us to appear here on Reasonable Doubts. And I wanted to personally thank you so much for uh, your your writings and how influential they've they've been to me personally and and to a lot of atheists, agnostics, and secular humanists I know who are still a little bit in the closet about their uh, their affinity for for Buddhism. Stephen. Well, thank you, Jeremy. And perhaps this is one of the first attempts at a 
kind of secular Buddhist dialogue. And um, no, I'm very touched by what you say. And um, I think we're very much on the same wavelength, actually. We'll have to see. I mean, I think it's only through our writings and through podcasts and through making these ideas public that such a dialogue could really be stimulated and, and developed. So let's hope that in the months and years to come that this way of looking at the world becomes less marginal. Okay, thank you very much. So that concludes our interview with Stephen Batchelor. I uh, just wanted to say something about this idea of a of a some sort of a formal dialogue maybe between secular humanists and Buddhists. Uh, I'm just speaking for myself here. I don't know how Dave and uh, Luke would feel about this, but I personally think that a, a dialogue could actually be beneficial for both parties. I find that even in the Mahayana tradition, the the focus on impermanence, the focus on confronting death and suffering. And most importantly, the focus on a mental culture, really interrogating one's moment-to-moment experience in life, I think to me has very high value. And I think a lot of skeptics would find this interesting and stimulating to their thought. And of course, I think this would be very beneficial for Buddhists as well. I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Western Buddhists are pretty susceptible to the alternative health movement, to New Age. Right. And, you know, the more skeptics we get out there in sanghas, I picture, you know, a wonderful consequence that could happen from a rich Buddhist humanist dialogue would be uh, more Buddhists picking up stuff like Michael Shermer, more Buddhists turning to websites like science-based medicine. It could be a way to bring in more skepticism and kind of really challenge the alternative health and new age movements from the inside. And in fact, I think because uh, Buddhists in other areas are very skeptical and are very critical, many of them would be very receptive to that message if it was if it was uh, packaged in the right way. And my personal advice is somebody who's visited Buddhist sanghas from both the Theravada and the Mahayana tradition. Well, first of all, if you're fortunate enough to find something in the Theravadan tradition, I, I would say go for that Check first. Check it out, yeah. What, one thing you need to be aware of, of course, is is etiquette. When you are going into uh, somebody else's religious community, especially one that, that is oftentimes associated with a different culture. Mm-hmm. It always makes sense to just call up first before you go and visit. A lot of times they're happy to have visitors. If they have a website or something, check their etiquette page. There may just be simple things sometimes that people are unaware of. I'll uh, give you a great example. In the, in the, there's a Thai forest Theravadan monastery here in Michigan. In their tradition, it's just a cultural thing. You're not supposed to sit on the ground with your feet facing, uh, pointing towards anybody. It's just seen as a rude gesture. Like, now, like in Middle Eastern cultures, the soles yeah. of your feet are, yeah, right. it's rude to show those to other people. Yeah. You know, there was one uh, person here at the Sangha. I didn't witness this. I was told this by somebody else. But there was somebody who came into the Sangha who was thinking, well, Buddhism is all about dropping our attachments and our aversions and everything. And when the Ajahn respectfully said, hey, you know, if you could just put your legs to the side, it's in our, in our culture, this is seen as kind of an insult. And mm-hmm. the guy said, uh, it's just a foot. Thought he'd challenge this guy. You know, what, what, what are your hangups? What are your attachments? It's just a foot. Right. So the Ajahn looked at him and flicked him off. <laughs> and the, and the, guy, the guy goes, hey, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. 
And Ajahn pointed to his middle finger and said, it's just a finger. Exactly. Yeah. So just yep. try to be respectful of other people's et- etiquette and culture. Call before, check a website. If, if you're entering into somebody else's space, you are a guest there. Yes. Be respectful as a guest would be. Don't go into the mosque with a pulled pork sandwich. Don't go into the temple with a cheeseburger. Right. But beyond that, I wanted to address the idea of what would a Buddhist counter-apologetic look like? You know, we, we bill ourselves as a counter-apologetics show. You know, there might be one question, is there, you know, what's the value to actively challenging yeah. Buddhist ideas? But if we assume that there is some good benefit that could come out of that, how would we want to go about doing that? And I think with Buddhism, because of the peculiar nature of some of these beliefs, we might have to think differently about our strategies, how we go about doing this. Of course, the Buddha taught many things that we already agree with, and that's a good foundation to build from. But clearly, doctrines like karma and reincarnation are a part of uh, even early Buddhism right. and much, much more so the Mahayana. Mm-hmm. So how would one go about challenging them? Well, with reincarnation, all you need is math, Right. You just explain, hey, there are six billion people on the planet right now. Where did all those souls come from if there weren't six billion people on the planet before? And that will totally stump them, right? (laughs) See, this is a perfect example, Dave. This is a really good uh, example of of the way that a skeptic might try to think through this. Right. And I've heard that argument before. Yeah. Yeah. I've read that in Free Inquiry. Right, right. But that's going to mean absolutely nothing to a Buddhist. Why? Because there's all these different in, – in their view, there's all these different dharma realms, right. right? There's several different levels of existence from a hell-like existence mm-hmm. to being animals to being ghosts yeah. to being deities that one could reincarnate into. So – What is it? The six realms of rebirth? Yeah. And then within some of those realms, the god's realm, there's what, 23 levels or something? Like we talked on the previous episode, it's all about lists of things and numbers. I think this is why Asians are so good at math. <laughs> okay, let's uh, try to avoid the racial stereotypes. I kid. Oh, well, you had to fill in because Luke wasn't here to exactly. make some sort of yeah, some, uh, quasi-insensitive comment. I'm not going to do an impression. I'll just do that. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, you could see their, their metaphysics allows them to wiggle out of that. What seemed like a great gotcha moment for us, mm-hmm. um, they can easily accommodate that within their worldview. These souls yeah. are coming from different realms. And yeah, I mean animals and everything else, they're, they're all part of this – Samsara. There's um, we can't just count the number of humans and say, look, there's more of us now than there were 5,000 years ago. Therefore, because these souls are still there somewhere. Maybe they're titans right now, or maybe they're ghosts. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Another tactic I think that it might be tempting for a skeptic to take uh, would be this question: Well, if there is no soul, uh, if there is no self, then what is it that is being reincarnated? Right. You hear that one a lot. Yeah. The Buddhist answer to that is is typically, well, it's it's the karma in some sense that's reincarnating. And karma is I do something good, then something good will happen to me. I do something bad, something bad will happen to me, right? Um, that's the my name is Earl version of karma. It's not like a one-for-one one thing. It's right. not like you punch some dude and then later on in your life or in the next life you get punched back. Right. Karma is more impersonal than that. Yes. But it is thought that your actions in your life will determine the status of your next rebirth. 
this may seem like quite a mystery. If, if there is no self, what could reincarnate? Mm-hmm. Again, most Buddhists are not going to find that as a, as a gotcha thing. Right. If they're from the consciousness-only school, especially, mm-hmm. well then, these, these defilements, these, this bad karma just embeds itself in consciousness. And you say, well, how does this consciousness exist without a body? Uh, we even we read the stuff from the Pali Canon where the Buddha was saying it doesn't. Right. It doesn't matter to them, right? These are the higher teachings of the Buddha. It does exist in consciousness because consciousness is all that exists. With so many of these Buddhist views, they are unfalsifiable. Your greatest attempts to reason these things out, if they believe in emptiness and all propositions are arbitrary anyways, mm-hmm. your, your logic is not going to make a shred of difference reason to them. Reason doesn't work. Right. Yeah. If you're trying to make arguments from science, trying to point out like, hey, look, uh, the mind and the brain seem to be the same thing. Yeah. You know, our, our brains are physically determined. Mm-hmm. Hell, we can't even get all humanists to agree on that point. How are we going to get a Buddhist to agree with us there? A- again, this can be easily accommodated within their, their mm-hmm. worldview. This is just the appearances. There, there's so many unfalsifiable beliefs here. There's so many different maneuvers Mm-hmm. that they can make to wiggle out of being trapped in anything. If you're going to challenge these Buddhist doctrines, I think you need to seriously rethink the typical strategies that we use when challenging different faiths. So it's kind of, it kind of seems hopeless, like how would you go about doing this? Yeah. Well, I think in a way, Bachelor is kind of our prototype here. Mm-hmm. Here is somebody who is very, very deep into it. Right. I mean, how much deeper can you get than being part of Dalai Lama's inner circle? Yeah. Um, I mean, he's practically Richard Gere. This is really. <laughs> or Uma Thurman's father. Really? He's the preeminent Tibetan Buddhist scholar at this point. I did not yeah. know that. Yeah. When you look at Bachelor's experience, if, uh, if, if you read Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. Which we recommend that you all do, of course. To me, it was amazing, uh, the the first part of Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, it was amazing how much his experience matched the experience of Christian apostates mm-hmm. here, here yeah. in America. You know, I had my own experience deconverting from Christianity. I get emails from our listeners all the time telling their stories. Right. Half a world away in India, a completely different religion. Mm-hmm a completely different set of doctrines and experiences, the things that led Bachelor to eventually doubt were amazingly close to the experiences we have. So, for example, one of one of the first doubts enters in Bachelor's mind when he encounters the teachings of different Buddhist sects that the Tibetan tradition believed they were superior to. Right. He learns some of these different sects and what they teach, and he has to, to wrestle with this question what makes my lineage right and theirs wrong? Why is mine better than theirs? And, yeah. You know, just like many Christians, eventually they learn from different denominations and everything, and they, they suddenly it dawns on them not all Christians believe the same thing. Right. He starts learning that the Tibetans don't have all the texts that were in the Buddhist canon, that there's many that were never translated into that language. Uh. Again, many Christians, when they start to read uh, the non-canonical texts and some of the other religious writings of the time, it could be very mind-opening for them. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things that happens is he's eventually – he leaves India and he's no longer in that monastic context 24 hours a right, day. Right. He can start now talking to other people with other different viewpoints. 
He starts in, uh, learning about uh, Western philosophy and reading, you know, a, a psychology books and everything. Again, it's like those Christian apostates going off to college. <clears throat> that's right. They break out of their social isolation. They get exposed to new ideas, and it allows them to think more freely and more mm. critically without all that pressure from the outside. Yep. And then finally, I think with all religions, there's usually some cord, some loose strand that is sticking out for the skeptic to tug on. Mm-hmm. For for me, in my personal experience, it was the idea that we love our enemies, we should love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute us. And then reading the Old Testament, I could see that m- most of the Bible did not match those values. Right. For Bachelor, it was this idea that, that everything should be scrutinized, that logic and personal experience will verify the Buddha's experience. Yeah. He was convicted that that was the case, but as he studied these and thought more critically, he realized that these arguments really didn't stand up. If you look at his experience, you get an idea of the ingredients that could shake a dogmatic Buddhist, mm-hmm. that could shake them free of some of their metaphysics. If you're talking with a Mahayana Buddhist, talk about all these passages in the Pali Canon right. where the Buddha flat out contradicts almost all of the doctrines. Yeah. If they use the emptiness defense – Unfalsifiability is really good at insulating your beliefs from criticism, yeah. but the problem is, is it makes your, your beliefs weak. It's now on equal footing with any other unfalsifiable claim. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring these things up. There might be good strategies in trying to disabuse a Buddhist of some of their more metaphysical beliefs. And the great thing is you have so much that you can agree with them on already, so many values that you probably already share sure. with a lot of Buddhists, uh, that hopefully you can do this in a, in a very respectful, thoughtful way. So thus endeth our look at Buddhism. Uh, please, those of you, especially those of you out there who have experience with Buddhism, we just got an email the other day from someone who had been a Buddhist for 35 years and was just starting to have doubts creep in and had, has been listening to our podcast. Wow. Yeah. I'd love to hear those uh, stories and um, please, any corrections uh, or possible corrections that you Clarifications, think, yeah, whatever. About things we've said about Buddhism, throw them our way so we can um, make it clearer for people. But this is – it's been interesting and I think it's been a fairly well-received topic. So unlike determinism, which will never be spoke of again <laughs> – Bullshit. No. Yeah, we'll get back to that sometime and vegetarianism. Um, uh, Buddhism, I, I think this is a topic that we will revisit from time to time and hopefully – We've armed uh, those of you who are unfamiliar with Buddhism with some context at least so you can talk to your Buddhist friends and loved ones. Mm -hmm. And we're going to end here with A Stranger Than Fiction. Jugal, the search engine for Jews. Uh, this story comes to us from NPR, so it's legit, even though it <laughs> doesn't sound legit. Um, they have new religious search engines which yield tailored results. So if yeah. if you're Jewish, you can get a Jewish search engine, which will only get results that fit with your faith. There's a Christian version called Seek Find, yeah. presumably because seek and ye shall find. 
uh, which is based out of Colorado Springs, home of Focus and the Family, uh, of course. Ted Haggard, and all sorts of Christian yep, movies. Yep. It's a Christian-based search engine that only returns results from sites that have a Bible-based perspective. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So, for an example, how this might work is if you search gay marriage on SeekFind, right. uh, you'll find all sorts of results about why gay marriage is a terrible thing and nothing yeah. that might challenge your own worldview. Or if you type in Democratic Party, your first search result is a site on Marxism. (laughs) Sounds like Glenn Beck designed this search engine. This is fantastic. Uh, If you're a Muslim, there's always uh, I'm halal. Yep. So if you search for sex with the uh, Muslim, you'll only get things that uh, deal with Islamic view on sexuality, so like burqa no, porn. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You beat me to the punch. No burqa porn. Or maybe only burqa porn. I'm not really sure how that works. Yeah, this is uh, this is a disturbing trend that is apparently catching on. Um, yeah. Actually, the article says that uh, sometimes there are site glitches. So, for example, I'm halal for the longest time. If you did do a search for sexuality – no results. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, you know, it's like in Iran. If you search for homosexuality, there's none there. So <laughs> right, right, of course. Uh, no yeah. such thing. Yeah. I, I wonder what the um, secular version of this would be called. I guess it'd be what? Google? Google. Yeah. To me, this is obviously a sign of intellectual weakness. Of if course. your faith can't withstand hearing any information that goes against it, it means your worldview really can't hold up. Exactly. But it's fun to see their positive spin on what's going on. Yes. Hoodman, I think is his name, um, from SeekFind, the the Christian version, says, and I quote, In a sense, I guess kind of what SeekFind does is a form of censorship. Okay, he's admitting that. That's good. But I more describe it as selective inclusion. (laughs) Because – you know, inclusion is a good word. Right. We like inclusion. <laughs> We're inclusive people. Oh, I see. Seek find is inclusive. Exactly. Just, you know, selectively. selectively inclusive. Yeah, nice. Oh, nice. will the spin ever stop? Uh so we'll end it there. And by the way, I encourage you to check these out. Um, I'm actually going to try these out myself and see what I can come up with and see how long it takes to find something um, of a salacious nature maybe. <laughs> you know what's – yeah, we, we need to find the loopholes. I think Luke has already done engines. that actually. Yeah. I think uh, I think he's <clears throat> on the case. I just, I just hate it because like Jugal is such a good joke. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> but we'd never be able to use it without accusations of, of well, being anti-Semitic. You know, you know? going – Years back now, I don't know if this is still around, but there was a Jew who. Oh, it Jew- was Jewish <laughs> Yahoo. Yeah, absolutely. And and I spent some time on there because it, it was pretty interesting. And this is back oh probably ten years ago almost. Huh. So so Jew who um, was a real um, trendsetter, I guess. Could you see us on a future episode saying something like, you know, I wonder what the orthodox interpretation of this passage in Ezekiel is. Maybe I should Google it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we can look forward to those days, huh? Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Until next time, send us your comments, questions, challenges, gripes, and suggestions to doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at slash doubtcast. Go to our Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash doubtcast <clears throat> and buy a uh, Reasonable Doubts shirt. We've got a handful of them up there. And if you do own one, 
take a picture of yourself and post it on our Facebook wall because oh, that would be really cool idea. to see. Yeah. Find the most exotic place to be photographed with your uh, <laughs> shirt. You know, if you can get into Notre Dame or <laughs> Westminster Abbey or something, you know. I'm at the Dome of the Rock right now with my <laughs> Reasonable Doubts t-shirt. Oh, man. That would be Amazing. And as always, of course, one of the best ways to support the show is to write us a review on iTunes or share the show with a friend. We'll be back next time when we'll talk about something other than Buddhism right here on Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.